you know, once the, the, the you put the technician, they put the technology in the hand of musicians, and they'll they'll do stuff with it, and they're almost certainly not going to do what you expect them to do. That's how it is. That's why they're called artists. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Chances are much of what you've heard of any sort of forward-thinking rock music made in the past 30 years was somehow influenced or informed by the work of the band that this episode's guest founded over 40 years ago in London. Colin Newman, front person and primary songwriter of Wire, along with his bandmates Graham Lewis, Bruce Gilbert, and Robert Gray, changed the landscape of the nascent punk movement that was emerging in 1976 by turning the very premise of punk against itself, rebelling against the orthodoxy it demanded and taking their own path. This has been a guiding principle of the band ever since, taking left turns when a straight-down-the-middle approach would be more appealing to a wider audience, and frequently deliberately subverting some would even say sabotaging what others expected of them. Newman spoke to us by phone from the English seaside town he calls home with his wife, musician Malka Spiegel, and demonstrates that even now, in his 60s, he's resolute in his beliefs about what's important in and about music. The first song Newman chose as being essential to him was X Tall by Aphex Twin. Um, the first track is. Uh, the thing is that all of these three tracks by Charles are opening tracks from albums. I don't know what that means. Uh, it just happens to be true. Uh, the first track is Aphex Twin. I don't know how you pronounce XTAL, Stahl, from Selected Ambient Works 85 to 92. Um, the reason why I've chosen this track is because it's very hard to narrow down any kind of choice to three tracks. So I thought. The, the, the thing that might be interesting for me to talk about, at least, whether it's interesting for anybody else to listen to, I don't know, um, is um, things which were influential and kind of helpful for me in learning how to produce a mix, which is something I, I've done a lot of. Um, uh, I've mixed, or mixed wire albums for at least the last 15 years, um, made a lot of stuff in my studio, um, and have other projects that I work on, including Immersion, which is the, the kind of current one. 
um, and it's a skill that I learned, I had to acquire, and I didn't do it from any schooling. I did it because I, I kind of needed to. Um, and that story starts, in a way, with what they laughingly called in the 80s and 90s the MIDI revolution. It was a place in which people who have previously... I mean, my, pre my experience of recording in, in the 70s was you go into a big recording studio and you go with some technicians and some helpful hands and you stand one side of the glass and play instruments while people on the other side of the glass kind of make your record for you. And that's a, it's a slightly oversimplified version of, of the method. But this requires a lot of money. I mean, before you can even start to think about making one of those record things, you'd have to have somebody give you some money to put you into a recording studio. And it seemed increasingly to me as the 80s went through that in a way record companies acted like gatekeepers to sort of prevent artists from really expressing themselves. I mean, you wouldn't, if you were a painter, you know, turn up, at somebody's house with a with a sketch and say I want to make a painting but you have to give me a hundred thousand dollars before I start I mean that's kind of how how the music industry developed certainly through the 60s and 70s and 80s that was kind of how it worked and I felt there was another way and I hate to use the t-word but technology offered a different route and the route was that you could use computers uh, computer sequencing and hardware synthesizers, drum machines, samplers to make records, and you could do those in your own space. And that was a, that was a really, really exciting thing because you could. I I'd heard lo-fi records in the 70s and 80s and wasn't much interested. To to hear something, to hear a record where basically some it's obvious that someone's recorded it in their front room just sounds a bit like sort of hobbyism. You know, I wanted things that sounded good. And the route, the route in was, was through MIDI and sequencing. But the downside to it was it was very good for making dance music. It wasn't great for doing rock tunes. So there had to be a fine, you had to find a way, or I had to find a way to relate to the, to the technology and find music that was kind of right. I, as much as I like techno, I kind of didn't imagine myself to be some Detroit techno kid, you know. So, and then hearing Aphex Twin was like, oh right, okay, this is obvious music that's obviously be done on in its own space, you know. That that that's that's not a professional recording studio job, especially selected ambient works. I mean, it's stuff you recorded at home over a number of years, and but it doesn't. Although it is, I suppose, technically quite lo-fi, it doesn't feel it. It feels complete in itself. I mean, music journalists used to refer to him as the new Mozart when, when those records came out. I mean, people thought he was a genius. I wasn't convinced he was a genius, but I thought that what he was onto was something that was really important, in that this music was related to dance music. It wasn't dance floor music. It was electronic music, which was kind of abstract but not lacking any tunes and 
it was it was like that was a way in. You could think about if you could think about music in that way, you could think about making music yourself in your own space that wasn't demos. I mean, everything I'd recorded before had been demos. It was all demos for something else. And I think that kind of really started. It was it was how immersion started. It was like, okay, we're just going to make music. And we're going to be completely free about doing it. We're not. It's not a demo for something else. It's not a proof to somebody else that we're that we've got some good tunes and we want investment. It's more like that we're just doing this. And I think I think I think that was that that kind of summed up a, a moment. I know that you uh, were interested in in techno and, and electronic dance music sort of during its first rise in, in the UK in the late 80s and, and, and into the 90s. Um, did a track like this, I mean, did it embolden you to, to do your own thing in that in that particular style? I think it was, I mean, when we first started, Malk and I first started doing, you know, productions in our own studio was back when we were living in Brussels. So you're talking about the second half of the 80s. And literally nobody was interested in what we were doing. People wanted us, you know, Malcolm was, I mean, Minimal Compact were really well known at that point, especially in Europe. And Wire was, you know, as well known as it's as it is. And yet, you know, if we talked to people from record companies, they weren't interested in what we were doing. They wanted us to be in bands. They didn't want us to be doing stuff that was basically kind of abstract, even though the projects we were working on before Immersion were actually song-based. And, and it, 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 I realized in the end we were kind of ahead of our time, but it didn't feel like it at, at that moment. It felt like that just seems all wrong. You know, why is it that, that why, you know, who are these gatekeepers? Who are these people who are saying this is the kind of music which is acceptable to be making and this is not? And it's partly to do with what, what you can market, but, you know, uh, if you've got imagine, if you've got imagination, you can market anything. Well, it's interesting too, just because of this particular moment. It seems like every day I open my browser or my email, and there is another, um, you know, message from someone talking about, "Oh, we found this thing that we've rescued this, you know, electronic music from the early '80s that no one heard," and and you know. The, the, your, your discussion about gatekeepers is especially interesting because it seems like now everyone is sort of, not everyone, a lot of people have pushed that idea aside and they're looking for exactly the stuff that the gatekeepers left out. Absolutely. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, I mean, what can you say? I mean, Apex Finn actually was pretty well regarded at the time. Um, and sure. a lot of a lot of middle-aged white men, got very excited <laughs> about him. That was one of the things that put me off him a bit. But, you know, I think that to give him his due, you know, and I heard it very early on because I, I was, at that point I was living in Brussels and, and Mark and I knew people who worked for R&S. So um, the first Apex Twin I heard was actually a white label of didgeridoo. So that was his first first 12-inch uh, he did for, um, for R&S. Um, so that was, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of very much in and around, and uh, I think it, I, I just think, uh, I mean, the other thing that kind of fed into that was was Malka with minimal compact. When they lived in Brussels, they lived in a, in a house which they shared, 
and the top floor, one of the rooms, had an 8-track and a little mixing board that they borrowed from the record company. And they just recorded all the time on it. It was to have that, that was really, in the mid-80s, that was pretty unusual for someone to have that level of recording in their own house. I mean, I didn't know anyone in the UK who had that. And they would record endlessly, and, and, and it, was a, it was a kind of different kind of music that they recorded. It wasn't stuff that was destined for band use. It was just fiddling about, stuff they liked. Uh, Mark used to call it music from upstairs. Uh, there was a, a mineral compact compilation a few years back, and it had an extra disc of some of that music from upstairs. And some of the pieces were really stunning. And, and it, specifically, Malka was always like, you don't always need to do stuff that's like, that has a form, that has, you know, that is a song, that, that fits into a project. You could just kind of be free. And it, But in, in a way, before that kind of compilation, which is, of course, years later, again, they, would, they just did it for their own amusement. Nobody else heard that music. You know, that, that was how it, kind of how it was. It was people would do, you know, once the, the, the you put the technician, you put the technology in the hand of musicians and they'll, they'll do stuff with it. And they're almost certainly not going to do what you expect them to do. That's how it is. That's why they're called artists. The second song Newman chose as being crucial to his artistic development was Steely Dan's Do It Again. the ridiculous um, the second track is um, Do It Again by Steely Dan uh, from Can't Buy a Thrill first track first album um, thing about Steely Dan is that they I, I in that period when those albums came out the first three albums specifically I totally loved them I didn't know anything about recording this is long before I'd ever learnt anything about recording or knew anything about recording but it was they somehow had a sound that that was what I, that was I wanted stuff that sounded as good as that their records sounded great but they were also I, I mean I liked what they were doing they were smart they were in a period when a lot of 
the, the sort of mainstream of rock music was kind of latter-day prog, where, you know, a track could be typically half an hour and involve, you know, I don't know, something about goblins or something. I mean, it was just nonsense. It was, you know, prog had gone into a place where nobody was interested in it anymore. You know, Steely Dan were sharp. They were, they were sassy. They were clever. They were kind of East Coast in that kind of knowing kind of way. You know, it was, you felt that it was, this is music made by very smart people. And it was cleverly put together and it had a level of precision in it which was really extraordinary for the time. You know, people just didn't make records that were that precise. You know, it, it's supposed to be rock and roll. It's supposed to be a bit sloppy. That was, we're, Philly Down were very un-rock and roll in every way that you could imagine. And I think the way that they've kind of influenced me is my... Although I started with, a, you know, in terms of production, with, you know, the rudimentary tools of of um, sequencer, sampler, synthesizers and stuff. What I really always was interested from those devices and from subsequent things that I, I got, and, you know, obviously I've, I've got the full Monty now, um, was, was, was the ability to have precision. I really like precision in music. I like stuff which is rhythmic and rhythmically precise. I don't really like flabby flabby music and it doesn't really matter you know whether it's something that has fierce drum beats in it or something that has no drum beats at all it's still rhythmic music that i like and music that i i work with is rhythmic and and rhythm is the key into understanding virtually you know my whole kind of process of working um and that's really whether i'm working on wire or immersion or I'm just doing something else. I mean, getting the rhythm, the rhythmic element right in the record, getting something which is um, really in time but doesn't sound machine-like is, for me, like that's, that's what you're looking for in music. Um, and, you know, I can't help but think that in some ways I'm kind of emulating Steely Dan, but... I mean, maybe that's a kind of absurdity. I don't, I'm not one of those people that studies records and tries to work out how they did it. I don't really care what kind of compressor somebody used. Or, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who thinks that if you could just own that bit of equipment, then your records would be brilliant. You know, your records would be brilliant because you make brilliant music. It won't be brilliant for any other reason. Um, and, uh, you know, so this is, I think that's, that's kind of, what, what I'm about in terms of in terms of music. Uh, did you hear them uh, contemporaneously? I mean, you were listening to them in the early seventies. Yeah, that was the only time. I mean, by by the time Wire started, I, I'd lost touch with Steely Dan. What's really interesting? Uh, that was the story I was going to tell. Um, um, last year, um, I finally took the plunge and bought a sub for the studio. And through contact, I got one of the guys from Genlec, who, who, who make them, to come and actually install it in the studio. The guy turned up. He was probably in his mid-30s, we were talking last year, um, tattooed, but short hair. Um, you know, you would think he's kind of 
some kind of rocker of some kind or whatever. You know, you you wouldn't place him. You certainly wouldn't place him with someone knowing or interested in music um, before he was born. And um, he wanted to test it out, and he said, <laughs> the first thing he said was, have you got any Steely Dan? <laughs> I, was, I was laughing because, you know, every, God, almost every engineer you ever met, you know, especially back in the 70s, they'd always, they'd always like, they'd always want Steely Dan. Asia is the, is the record that all those kind of um, techno, technoid kind of people tend to like. I, I, I don't know it that well. I, I don't hate it now. I hated it at the time, but um, I thought they'd become just too mechanical by that point. But I can, looking back, I can see, I can see that the record does work. Um, so it, uh, it's kind of funny. It makes me laugh. I mean, Steely Dan are definitely a great opinion divider. I think people either love them or hate them. I know loads of people who hate them. I think I'm an idiot because I even would even mention them. You know. Well, I was going to say, you know, you 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 know probably had a fairly typical diet of of listening in the early '70s, and then you you know willingly or not were sort of associated with a movement that you know despised all that, turned their back on all that. Um, but yeah, I mean that's, that's that, yeah that never made any sense to me anyway. I mean, to be quite honest, I never I never I never subscribed to Punk's Year Zero. I just thought it was. And also, I, I recently bought a new pair of speakers, and you know, you go into the room and they've got it all set up, and you know, it's very uh, pristine and 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 technocratic. Uh, and sure enough, there was a copy of uh, the CD of Gaucho. Uh, yeah, in amongst the uh, in amongst the demos. So the the, the test, and but the funny thing was, is he put it. We put it on, we were playing it from iTunes. He put, put it on the list of it, and he said, oh, yeah, it sounds pretty good. He said, there's not a lot of bass in this, though, is there? <laughs> and being as we were testing out a sub-bass speaker, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a very fun, funny comment. But I mean, it, he wanted to hear something that he was familiar with in the space to, to, to check that the main speakers were balanced with the sub, which is, I mean, which is incredibly important. That's really, you know, the speakers are your windows, if you can't, if that, if if your hearing is any way occluded, you can't make judgments about the music that you're mixing. This is uh, more important than anything else is the speakers that you have and the, how they're situated and and how they react with the room that you're in. That's, that's 90%, I think, of of how to mix anything. And obviously, I can say that because I've kind of a lot of experience of doing that, but. As a kind of a piece of advice to anybody, you know, it's get your monitoring right because everything else should fit. If, you, I mean, if you've got no idea and you really have no idea about arrangement and you really have no idea about what sounds should be loud, what sounds should be quiet, what sounds should be sharp and what sounds shouldn't be sharp, then you probably shouldn't be doing the job, you know. I'm struck by the fact that your first two tracks, you picked one thing that's, you know, one person alone in their bedroom or in their house or their basement um, with just machines, and then another um, another uh, artist that is renowned for, uh, you know, just being two people uh, for the most part, but 
drawing from this wide range of different musicians and sort of bringing them in and, you know, having five people play a guitar solo and then using the best one and, and spending, you know, months and millions on making a record. These two very different extremes of, of, of how to make music. Well, I think that was, that was in a way quite deliberate, you know. I mean, I, I, definitely, I, I definitely understand both worlds. Uh, given, given having your own um, setup to record and mix means, that, of course, that you can include an awful lot more of the Steely Dan world than you could if you had to be paying studio time. Because you do have to, you do have the chance to experiment. Yeah, maybe you're not. I, I'm not going to bring in five guitar players to try and pile out. But the idea that you might try out an approach towards something, or you might fiddle with something and see if you can get that. To, you know, it's just your own time, really. Although you know, my time does become has become much more precious than it used to be. Um, it's still, you know, there isn't there isn't a cost really associated with that. And cost, you can't leave out cost from any of this kind of analysis. It was my, it's always always my aim when building up my studio is to never buy anything that would cost more money than an average musician would be able to afford. Because I, I wouldn't be able, I couldn't afford to buy it. <laughs> I mean, that was, but I always, you know, I, I've always kept to that kind of, you know, it, it needs to be kind of modest, really. I mean, the, you know, a big, a big, big step happened in 1999 when Pro Tools released their very first um, kind of affordable piece of hardware, stroke software. Uh, that was that was a really a huge thing because suddenly you could really have what they call in England champagne, champagne on lemonade money. You know, you're getting the high-end devices. You're getting you're getting a taste of the high end, and you're getting it for spending, you know, a few hundred pounds, which you know, in the general run of things, it's not a huge amount of money that you would be spending on equipment. I mean, that, that I think everything changed at that point. Newman's third and final choice was Black Rebel Motorcycle Club's 2008 song, Love Burns.
third track is probably surprise you again uh, it's uh, Love Burns by Black Rebel Motorcycle Club which is the opening track of the RMC uh, eponymous they say that eponymous where, where you name the album the famous band um, the reason why I chose that was the, after as, as I worked through the 90s um, uh, Mark and I moved to London in 92 um, the studio had its first dedicated space we converted uh, a room in our house into a studio um, I bought a bigger mixing console we started working on more complex productions but they were still basically MIDI productions they were um, it was sequencing it was Sampling, but you know, with a better sampler, longer sampling times. You could, you could, you know, it got to the point where you could use audio as well, not just tape. Actually, audio recorded onto hard disk. Starting to be something that was a kind of method for making music. And then, right at the end of the of the nineties, wire started happening again, and. That was kind of significant in my life because not just because I'm in it and and it you know started to exist again, but um, I, there, there was an album that I worked on in I think '98 or '99 by a band called Silo, which was um, which was a, a, a release on on, on uh, Malcolm I's label Swim, um, and that was the first time I'd worked on anything that you could call rock that was you know it was mixed in my studio um, I took care of of most of the sequencing um, I can't remember precisely how we did it it was pre-pro tools I know um, but the, it, it sounded it sounded machine-like but it also sounded like a like a rock record um, and for me, that was a kind of interesting thing. And what, how, the way it became more interesting was the fact that it alerted people in Wire to the fact that you could make what was fundamentally you know, a record with guitars and drums in my studio. That changed the landscape for what Wire could do. And... Um, there was a period in the early part of the last decade which was kind of culminated in Send when mainly Bruce and I worked in my studio, by that time it was in Pro Tools, working on tracks that were going to end up being Send. And, um, you know, we just worked on quite a lot of stuff together, um, got, in, got stuff from other band members and and worked through it and came with a bunch of tracks and it started to get to the point where we started to think about what we were going to release and the first thing that we were going to release was was Read and Burn 1 and I felt I needed to figure out like actually how to mix wire and it seemed to me that well, the thing that I needed to do was make wire sound big um, and so it was, this was a, around the time of that Black Rebel Motorcycle Club album 
was when I listened to that track, Love Burns, I think, how did they get that to sound so big? That sounds really big to me. Uh, the drums sound big, the guitars sound big, everything sounds big in it. Um, and so I kind of, I thought, okay, how do I feed this into making this wire material? And I think it was specifically the track, uh, It's All in the Art of Stopping, which is frankly, I mean, simply it's just basically guitar drums and voice and one tiny extra guitar with a couple of tricks in it. I mean, there's nothing in the track. Yet, uh, yet somehow, I kind of, with this Black Red Rebel Motorcycle Club in my head, I figured out how to make that sound really big. And it was, my, I think, the first time I really thought, hang on, I could do stuff with this material. I could make it so that we could be putting in records and they people would buy them and we would own the means of our production and which is you know exciting for somebody like me you know and, and in a way you know I was already running swim pink flag became a logical step of what to do but it was driven by them by the studio by having the studio by being able to do something in there on our own time. I mean, Bruce, were, Bruce and I were like a year and a half working on that stuff with very little going on outside. It was just, we'd you know, do two or three days a week just working on this. And to, you know, and, and my feeling from Bruce was that he would, there would be a point when he would get bored. He wasn't interested in mixing. So I realized that, you know, I had been mixing, but now it was... You know, I'm going to be mixing things that are going to be heard by a lot of people. And they don't want to hear a lo-fi wire. They don't want to hear, you know, if they think 154 is the gold standard in wire, they don't want to hear a record that sounds like it was made on someone's four-track in their front room, you know. You know, it, 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 it has to sound good. And, you know, sort of for me, the, the, the kind of key into it was, was big... So, you know, you've got really, between the three tracks, you've got, you know, innovation and freedom, precision, and big. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm into. Well, you know, if you look back, I mean, you know, apart from the other music you've, you've worked on and looking back over the, the, the career of, of Wire, it seems like the studio and, and what you had access to and then what, you were able to to sort of, you know, the new things that came along always seemed to have made some sort of difference, made some sort of turn in the music. I think, it, but it's also to do with a certain amount of dedication. I mean, most musicians are quite good at fiddling with stuff. Um, and a lot of musicians are great at starting things. It takes a particular kind of... Um, doggedness to finish something and I, I kind of discovered through that process that I could actually finish something and I could I could make something and it's been a long slow process I mean I, I can't I mean I've, I've been just the last couple of weeks working on um, the, the very first swim release which was Rush Bellata Malco's first solo album 
we're re-releasing it and we're doing a gig to um, kind of launch it somehow and um, this is a record that was basically made with sequences um, you know sampling drum machine and tape so a tape machine synced to the synced to the the, the the sequencer, but I mean, it was only eight tracks, and once you've taken out one, one track for the synchronisation, it's seven tracks of tape. Um, and so it's this was not done by a band; it was just done by Malcolm and I building it up. So this can't be, you can't present it as a band. You have to find a different way to present it. But first of all, had to find a way to get back to the original tracks because you know they exist on a variety of media. So I had to kind of recreate the tracks in Pro Tools, which is quite a long and involved process. But it's made me aware, really aware, when I have all the pieces there, like how much I've learned about mixing over those years. Rush Bellata came out in, I think, 93. So we're talking... Um, uh, so, am I right? So that's 25 years. That's 25 uh, years. Yeah, I believe so. So I mean, that's a long time of of you know, and I think you you do get more focused. You, you understand more about how sound works. But I, I've never had any training. It's all just how I like things to be, for, really, from a, a musician's point of view, really. If you don't have any musicality, there's no, it's not music, you know. It can't be all about, you know, the quality of the compression or, you know, whether that, you know, snare sound sounds better than anyone else's snare sound. You know, who gives a stuff? You know, it's music is an emotional thing. People, people need to be able to relate to it. But it, it has, they have to view the music through a clean window. The window is extremely dirty because the person who's mixed the sound doesn't really know how to get clarity out of the elements, then maybe that music will never translate and maybe people will never really understand it or get it. So you, you need that, it's a skill of translation, I think. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcastcentral. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.